Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to No Password Required, a podcast dedicated to exploring the minds and personalities that make up the field of cybersecurity. I'm your host, Ernie Ferraresso, and with me as always, Jack Clavy, a cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields, PA in Tampa. On the podcast today, we will chat with Hannah Suter, Senior Product Manager at GitLab and a digital privacy advocate with At The Privacy Chick. Hannah often spends her workdays creating balance among developer accessibility, user experience, and security. When she's not thinking about the nuts and bolts of digital privacy, she can be found outdoors enjoying the crisp Colorado air. Hannah, we look forward to a great conversation, but first, hello to my co-host, Jack Clavy. Good day to you, sir. Uh, good day to you, Ernie. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, pumpkin spice latte season here. I'm just trying to, you know, uh, work out every day, get ready for uh, for Thanksgiving. Well, you got to make sure I look it. my best. You got to, you got to, that's right. You got to <laughs> wearing warm layers, especially down here where the temperature drops into the, into the low seventies um, mm-hmm. during the day here. Uh, that's uh, that could be tough. And like you said, <laughs> pumpkin spice lattes, they're, we're going to talk more about those in, as we get into the future, but uh, I'm going to, I don't want to offend people, but uh, I, I'm not a, I'm not a pumpkin spice latte person. I'm not, I'm just not going to lie. Right, well, I look, we got to talk about a meeting that happened at the White House uh, in October, and I, I don't think any pumpkin spice or PSL uh, was served there, you but probably got, got together some of the uh, White House cyber officials with uh, FCC uh, and, and uh, representatives and a few folks from private industry. But the conversation was about a potential rating standard. Well, not a rating standard, but a, a disclosure regime for uh, internet connected devices that may be coming in 2023. You know, this is a, a product that was maybe announced about a year ago uh, when the FTC and I think uh, NIST were involved in looking at it. But the idea was now you've got you know, web-connected thermostats, you've got web-connected um, refrigerators, which is the one that I always love talking about the most. And you also have devices that are, have commercial applications that are web-connected that don't immediately have, you know, adva- obvious advantages to being internet-connected. And there's no real regulation of this um, other than, you know, sort of general consumer standards that may apply to devices like this. So the proposal from the executive branch is essentially a QR code or a barcode that would be on any internet connected device you might encounter in the wild uh, and would allow the user to scan it and learn information about the product and particularly, you know, whether it conforms and how to a standard that may be set in the future by NIST or some other standard setting body. So it's a regime that's, you know, designed to tell us just what is this vacuum cleaner collecting about us and how is the vacuum cleaner software, uh, you're keep, keeping that data safe. Beyond the dust from my floor, what else is this thing collecting? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a little, other countries have taken a different approach. So some other countries have, instead of saying, you know, disclose, disclose what your product is doing with the data, they actually have standards. It'll say, you know, do this or don't do that. If a company is going to have a device, it's going to be internet connected. There's going to be a standard. It's going to say, do or don't follow these prescriptions. And there's pros and cons to that, right? The big pro is, you actually have a safer product if you believe the standard. The con is any standard that you can you know, pass in a democratic way is gonna be almost immediately obsolete 
a couple by, by the time we get it passed. And so it's that general tension. And so the U.S. approach is going to be, you know, do whatever you want with it, but you just have to tell people what's happening, a disclosure-based approach. Um, there'll be some standard, but it won't be a requirement to meet it. It'll just be disclosure as to how you're doing it. And the comparison model for this is what the, um, the, uh, the U.S., um, I think it's the Department of Energy, had for that Energy Star product. It's a number that appears on like, again, that same refrigerator, and you can compare two refrigerators side by side. And you know, a larger number tells you one thing and a smaller number tells you another thing. Um, they're trying to sort of create a similar, you know, uh, single dynamic with more information behind it for, for the internet of things, uh, which, you know, again, it's probably better than nothing, maybe. I don't know. Um, but it, I mean, Ernie, what do you think? Is it introducing more problems? Generally speaking, I think it's in the right direction so that consumers are more aware of what they're what they're going to be buying. I, I mean, so, well, I mean, here's the, here's the thing. So you mentioned refrigerators. What happens when, uh, so I'm going to, if I'm the manufacturer of my plain old uh, regular unconnected refrigerator, I'm going to say that, listen, it's a, this is the highest cyber security score uh, re uh, refrigerator. Why is that? Because it's not even connected to the internet. There's no <laughs> electronics in it. So, so it can't, it, it can't be hacked because there's nothing to hack. It's also made out of lead in the 70s. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, Indiana, jo Indi Indiana Jones can hide within that refrigerator <laughs> exactly. and survive a nuclear blast. Exactly. Exactly. And you can't eat any of the food coming out of it because of said <laughs> lead. But uh, uh, but yeah, it, but the when we get into the, the implementation of it, um, uh, I just think it's funny. You scan the QR code. Uh, and as we know, QR codes nowadays are, are like the uh, like, you know, picking up USBs from trade shows. <laughs> You know, the, who, you, you got to be careful about what uh, what travels with the uh, connected to the QR code. So I can just imagine um, if you're, hey, this is a you know Energy Star for cyber rated product made in made in Vladivostok, and you click on it, and next thing you know, congratulations, you're you're beaming all your data uh, back to the uh, the former Soviet Union. Uh, yeah, the, I love that. Okay, so that's the irony, right? It's yeah. I'm I'm standing in a big box retailer. And I'm standing in front of a barbecue that is an internet connected barbecue. And I've got two of them I like, and they both have QR codes and ratings. And I have to take out, in order to learn more, I take out another internet connected device, device. my phone, <laughs> take a picture of a, of a website that I have no way of verifying <laughs> other than it's on a sticker at a retail <laughs> establishment. <laughs> exactly. And I've got to do this twice. Uh, and I've got to tombstone my two reviews and I've got to look at them and I've got to compare the two reviews. So. Yeah, I don't know if more internet is the solution to it's like that's it's right. Well, because yeah, no, freedom of speech, it's like more speech is the solution. But here, right. let, let, let's let's make this poor user whose internet stuff, whose whose barbecue purchase is going to be collecting a whole bunch of barbecue related data about them and location data. Okay, that's right. And, and make them tell tell that <laughs> make them tell that company uh, that they connected with this device on this date in that store. Looking uh, at their yeah at their bar <laughs> at, at their particular grill, and if they're not and, and oh by the way you can probably they'll probably also get notified that they did look at your competitor's grill as well. And you're going to start getting <laughs> grill related advertisements. And I wonder, like in California, where they have the 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 CCPA and the CPRA set up, is that if they're if they are you going to have to get a notice at collection that tells you by scanning this QR code I'm collecting this data about you, including location data. I mean, it's I get what they're trying to do. Um, 
you know, I, as far as I know with Energy Star, it's just a number. It's not a number in a QR code that, yeah, that's that right. would yeah. collect more data about you. But this, this is just the idea that we're going to create a privacy disclosure regime that is going to collect more data than if it didn't exist is, is great. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know what. And I just, I also wonder because, so part of the, uh, the benefit for the energy star was that you could use that if you purchase they there was you know tax breaks and other incentives yeah. that go along with that um are they gonna is that where this is because the the idea is is if i'm a company what why would i do this yeah why would a, i add right. this um and then and then and then the other part i mean you may i'm thinking about this jack if i if i'm a, if, if one is the best let's just say yeah. And I'm a, my product is a one and somebody installs that in their home. And oh, by the way, I'm, I'm number one, but that becomes the, the entry vulnerability to their network. And, the, and oh, it's because of that, are, is that who's, hey, wait a minute, you guys yeah. said you were a one, but how'd they get in through it? That's right. So you're um, getting, that's the problem with, well, the disclosure regime, right? And they're going to, any lawsuit that follows that will be arguing that you told us it did this. In fact, it did not do that. Or yeah. you told us it did this, but, and it did do that. But that wasn't high enough to meet a standard of care. So there's the two theories it could bring in. Yeah, you're just creating electronic data. Now the FCC is involved in this, and you know they've taken the position uh, that they have the ability to regulate certain aspects of of the mm. electronic communication marketplace, which may or may not include the the internet. But it, but if you like, you know, if you look at the bottom of like a hair dryer, it'll have some already standard warnings and disclosures about. Um, frequencies, for example, right? if yeah. it communicates that yeah, certain yeah. So there are there are existing disclosure regimes that um, have some sort of legal theory behind them. Some are voluntary, some are required. Um, and so the FCC, the FTC, and and a number of other in the Department of Energy probably all are are behind the scenes vying for who's going to be the one to to put this program out, or they might be aware of the risks of a program like this and, and be vying to have it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> everyone, a... <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. Whoever remains standing and everyone backs up or whatever it is, step forward. If you volunteer for the mission and everyone backs up, That's but, right. I, but I wonder, I mean, look it, it, at the core of this is a problem. And the problem yes. is consumer uh, mistrust, you know, which is well-placed, I think to some degree with, with the interconnectivity of devices. But I, you know, the idea that I need to have a username and password to operate a barbecue grill um seems bananas right yeah. it seems it seems a little bananas and I, I think about now like when you bought a car even 15 years ago i mean that's the ultimate connected device is a car um, just because of its own destructive potential uh you, you know you bought a car 10 15 years ago you didn't ever need a username or password now if yeah, you, you buy need an account, any yeah. car yeah you, you need you need a username and password to get access to a whole bunch of stuff and functionality in your car so yeah it's it's moving in that direction. Maybe, maybe what these consumer advocacy um, uh, groups should simply say is, "How about have a device, uh, ha have some functionality on this internet-connected device that turns it off and that allows me to operate it without it." Yeah. That may be a better solution, <laughs> to, or at least you know, consumers should demand that, and you know, at, when they're out there shopping for connected barbecue grills. That's right. Anyway, yeah. Well. So speaking of turning things off, we're going to turn this off and turn on to our next, uh, our next segment. So we'll take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to talk to Hannah about her passions for people and privacy and where they eventually intersected. So stick around. Looking for more no password required content? Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. 
at NoPasswordPod. All right, welcome back. Our guest is Hannah Suter, Senior Product Manager at GitLab. Hannah, welcome to No Password Required. Hi, Ernie. Thanks. Really happy to be here. Hannah, can you walk us through your career path a little bit, uh, where you got started in you know, having an interest in, in sort of this subject matter and, and then how it led you to your current role at GitLab? Yeah, sure. So um, I went into college undecided. Um, I thought maybe I would major in journalism because I was the editor of my high school newspaper um, or pharmacy because, you know, I heard they make good money. <laughs> um, so whenever you go in undecided, uh, they force you to take classes kind of from all over the board. Um, and I had to take one in the computer science space, um, never thinking that it would turn into anything. Um, but I took an intro to information science class, and I liked what I heard, um, particularly from a influential, awesome um, female professor. And anytime we do, like for International Women's Day, like name a woman that changed the course of your life, um, she's the one I always use. Um, so she was awesome. And I ended up declaring it um, as my major. Um, after school, I went into consulting in the software space, starting out in QA um, or quality. Um, within a couple years in quality, I was promoted to lead and kind of thought like, is this it? What's next? Because there's just not that much, um, nowhere else to go really in QA um, from there. Um, so I asked my boss if I could uh, write code um, with the understanding that I would hopefully be productive quickly and learn on the job. It wasn't like I needed to go out and be gone for some training or anything. I would just learn on the job. Um, so they gave me the opportunity um, and it was super heads down. Um, I don't think it's always like this anymore. Um, after all, this was a long time ago and it was the company culture. Um, but after being heads down, I started to um, ask more questions uh, like, why are we doing this certain feature? which customer is interested? Can I talk to the customer? Um, and after asking that enough times, I had the product people be like, you know, maybe you would be a good product manager. <laughs> um, so that's where I am today. And I feel like it's a really good fit with business and the technical. To, to go back to that class um, that, that sort of put you on this path, what was it about the teacher's engagement that, that got you thinking, like, this is where I might want to be as opposed to journalism or or pharmacy? What, how did that, how did it uh, affect you? Yeah, so what was, what she really did a great job of was helping me understand how being in tech um, has an influence and makes a difference on people, right? So sure, technology is cool. We like the latest and greatest shiny thing. That's human nature. But where does tech meet human needs? And where does it actually fit into the real world? And understanding that once we find a fit for how tech applies in the real world, that we can really apply it at scale and realizing that potentially one person can make an app that millions of people download, for example. Uh, so I think the scale of the human uh, being able to influence humanity, hopefully in a positive way, was really intriguing for me and not something I ever thought of when I thought about tech. Do you, do you think about design every, in everyday things as well as design when you're thinking about a product? Like if you're like going to purchase like, a pair of scissors. Are you thinking about it? Can you turn that part of your brain off when you're in the regular world? <laughs> no, I can't. I, I feel like more for me, more than anything, it's efficiency. So I'm always thinking of like, what ways could we be more efficient and, and faster and things like that. So I feel like I tend to, more towards the efficiency side of usability more than anything. But 
Yeah, that's definitely always plaguing me. <laughs> it's like the the tension that happens between, like, so we're talking about username and password right now. That's the credential pair is what most people do when they're logging into a web-based email account or a software application that they need to use for their job. Or, you know, if they want to go and order pizza, they've got to use the username and password pair. It's easy, but it's got problems. What do you think will eventually replace that username and password pair, if, if there is anything? Yeah, so I think the exciting part about this is that this is already happening. Um, and it's uh, standard by uh, FIDO, which is kind of a big tech alliance that develops standards. Um, and the passkey standard um, has officially been developed. And it took uh, almost a decade. But as of this year, we finally have Microsoft, Apple, and Google all bought into adopting the passkey standard. Um, and kind of what this is, is that it's a hardware factor that you already use to unlock uh, your phone, uh, for example, or whether you use a pin, uh, face scan, uh, your thumbprint. Um, basically, the act of doing that will log you into other services that support Passkey. Uh, so it will take a while for this to be, I think, broadly adopted. But I think um, it's much more secure than a username and password because it is a hardware factor uh, rather than a soft factor like a password. Um, and it's really exciting. And I feel like this is just a new development as of this year. Um, but I've even seen it as the year has progressed. I've seen it gain steam now and more and more articles and um, Apple, Microsoft and Google really talking about it and publishing a lot um, in terms of their support for it as well. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that because I was just, uh, it's funny, I, uh, I spend too much time thinking about strange things. As I was unlocking my iPhone with my face, um, uh, I, I started to think from that, how that really verifies that, in fact, it was me who is unlocking the phone. So now it's adding an addition to the, uh, you know, the security of it, but it's also adding a, a component of identity management that it is, in fact, I mean, it's, Unless somebody's going to have a, I mean, unless Jack could probably pass for me, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, but he is a better looking guy. Uh, but it, you know, from that aspect of it, it's also kind of, it's also that physical thing saying that, yes, it is in fact, uh, it's correlating to a person as opposed to where we before, you know, it, it was just whoever entered the data into the computer. Uh, so I'm just wondering if, is that, am I, am I talking crazy there or is that uh, an additional component to this? No, and I mean, that it is true, and that's part of the reason why it is more secure, because you're actually validating that the person's standing there. Um, and I have seen some, I guess I'd call it more of an edge case, um, particularly there was uh, uh, a crypto startup that went around to different uh, countries and was scanning people's retina in exchange for um, some crypto called WorldCoin. And it was kind of a scandal because they were doing this um, only in third world countries where you know, people were really intrigued by this coin that was technically not even worth anything. And it was like, what are they doing with all of this biometric data? But I heard that what people were doing in some cases were um, trying to fool uh, and get WorldCoin um, by putting like a fake um, person. I don't know whether it's like a sort of 3D printout of a person's face trying to get more WorldCoin. And they had to actually adapt that and put some sensors in to actually check that, you know, somebody has, a, they did a temperature sensor to check, like, is that actually a human standing there at, you know, 98.7 or whatever the body temperature is supposed to be. So yeah. I think the, the, I think 
if you compare it to the username and password, it's so much more secure. Is it perfect? No, but it's a lot more secure. Yeah, I think you're right because there's been, even with the, uh, I remember when we first started with uh, fingerprints and thumbprints, um, that was the big thing that, oh yeah, people are going to spook some, because they see too many uh, uh, cop and James Bond movies. But how long do you think it's going to take to get there? I'm, I think that these companies that have, very like technical users uh, who are more who are very security conscious, such as like GitLab, for example. We primarily have software engineers as our users. I think we are going to need to adopt this rather quickly um, because they will demand so. Um, and I think some other companies that are uh, have maybe a lower uh, risk in terms of the data they're collecting. Um, I think they're going to be the later adopters, but probably very technical products that have technical audiences. Um, credit card companies. Um, I know there are some companies today that force uh, multi-factor, and that was kind of a big deal to see if audiences would be okay with that. Um, and it, actually, it's taken time, but it's been very successful. So I wonder if eventually password lists will be the standard, um, at least in more high-risk uh, things like banking, credit card, filing your tax return, things like that. It's like the the pushback on some of that multi-factor authentication is that it's, you know, if it's going to send you a ping to a phone or if it's going to send you a ping to an email address, then the user needs to track either another device or needs to track another email account and password pairs for those things. So it can, when, when a, you know, software as a service or a platform requires instant engagement, they're just putting 30 seconds or 20 minutes, you know, between the user and the platform, it's pretty hard. Um, but that's not the case for something like what you're describing, where it's a bank where we have, you know, or it's, or it's um, a highly technical piece um, as opposed to social media or something. Like right. That. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a difference between the two. <laughs> what, um, on Instagram, you have the persona privacy check. What, what, what can you tell us about that and where that came from and, and, and what you do with that? I started the privacy check Instagram probably a couple months ago now. Um, and I've taken being in digital identity uh, as my day job, Privacy is obviously a part of that. Um, I feel that right now it's only a small part, but it should be bigger. Um, and I'm concerned with my digital footprint and um, I felt like I can't be the only one, um, but sometimes I sort of felt like I was the only one. So <laughs> I thought, what's a, what's a low barrier way to get, to get my message out there? And I realized the irony of being concerned about my digital footprint and posting on Instagram. Um, and prior to the privacy check, I hadn't posted on Instagram in almost three years. Um, so I definitely had some hesitations about that. Um, but I also felt like if it's between Instagram and like starting a blog, I'm never going to write a blog post every day. I don't have that kind of time. Um, as much as I would like to start a podcast in the space, I've tried before. I knew I wasn't going to continually keep up with that. But like 10 or 20 minutes a day dedicating yeah. to an Instagram post, like, yeah, I can do that. So I thought it was a low barrier way to share some of what I'm learning about privacy and hopefully doing some advocacy work in terms of, I really think people should care more about this um, and kind of providing people uh, why um, on why they should care. So why do you think it's so hard to get people to care about privacy issues? Your thoughts on why you think it's so hard to get people to, to believe, yeah, you should listen, you shouldn't run around the internet with no clothes on. Nobody wants to see you there, you know, especially if you want to have, keep your teaching job. Now, that, by the way, that was a reference to uh, weird science. 
uh, at the end where uh, I'd like you to keep this between ourselves. I'd hate to lose my teaching job. That's <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Gosh, I think it's multifaceted. Um, I think part of it is thinking that, you know, it's already so far gone um, that there's really at this point, like they already know everything about me. All of that data has already been sold to however many companies, you know, like what can I possibly do about that now? Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, I think part of it is thinking like, you know, I'm not really that interesting. I'm not doing anything super secretive online. Um, so, you know, they can have my information. Uh, and then I think a third part of it is, um, some of the things we get as a result of the targeted data is beneficial to us. Like, yeah, are those targeted ads? Would I rather see those or would I rather see ads for things I don't care about? Or like, yeah. cool, they showed me a coupon code for a website I was on. Now I just saved 10 bucks. Like, that's not all bad. So I think there's some positive, some, there's some benefit we get out of it as well. Sort of put this sort of thought experiment out there. Like, all right, complete this idea. Like data privacy in the US would be better if all the big tech companies voluntarily did blank? I think if all big tech did a do not track by default rather than track. Um, so right now you're sort of automatically opted in um, to uh, tracking. And I think it would be better if we started out with not tracking as the default. And if you do want those coupon codes and whatnot, and you're, that's an equal trade-off for you. Yeah. Um, go ahead and opt in. And this principle is called privacy by default. Um, I don't think it's practiced by many companies right now. And I think that's because in the US, there's really no incentive to um, until perhaps there's more privacy legislation passed. Yeah, we think there's probably more incentive uh, for companies to, to keep it open, uh, meaning you have to opt out uh, because again, people, they're, they're mining that data. Um, that's for some, it's a, that's their, that's their I mean, primary that's a, bread and that's butter. Yeah. Billions of dollars, you know, a mm -hmm. billion dollar, billions of dollars of industry right there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the default regime in the U S is, is not do or don't do this particular thing. It's requires the, the users of, or the collectors of the data to disclose what they're doing. So it's a disclosure regime rather than a, a prohibitive one that says do or don't do this with the data. So that the suggestion you made, Hannah, is still a disclosure regime. It just says, you know, you can do it, but before you do it, you need to have them opt in. Mm, it's an opt yeah. in versus opt out. So it would be in line with what we're already doing. It wouldn't be really radical. Um, you know, and everyone has a technology. If you have opt out technology, you can Got it. make it opt in. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's the same standard that we see with just even security controls on, on, on systems. It's the, uh, uh, a lot of things you, it's all open and you have to close the, you have to close, you, you have to shut things down as opposed to you got it, you turn it on and you have to open things up. Uh, so it's Yeah. Like, I, one thing I've been, I showed on the privacy check that seemed to resonate with a lot of people is, you know, with the cookie consent banner that's on pretty much every website. Yeah. Um, most have a way to reject um, non-essential cookies. And yes, some of them you have to click four levels deep and it's annoying. Other ones make it easy from the get-go to reject non-essential cookies. Um, but people didn't know that you could reject those and still use the website. Like, oh, wow. you know, people were yeah. like, oh, I thought I had to click accept or else I couldn't go on the website. So even oh, wow. just something as basic as that, I think people don't even understand uh, the options available to them. Yeah. And I think that some of them are deceiving on that too, that, that pop-up that comes in it. Cause it only really kind of 
gives you one option, click here to accept. And then, uh, or, or if you don't, there's no way to, I don't want to accept. How do I go from that? Yeah, there's some, I've seen some, and I try to shout them out on my Instagram when I see them that will give you the option that just says like, use only essential cookies. And I'm like, thank you. Like you're, you know, you're making this better for, you're making the internet better. <laughs> thank you. It should be like some kind of program, like here, privacy heroes of the internet. And I mean, but that's, what's nice about your Instagram. You can do that. You can pick, you can shame people, but you can also say, all right, here's a company who's doing it right. Yes. Yes. And I do want to, I do think there are some companies trying to do it right. So I do try to shout them out when I see them. We heard a little bit about an adventure you had. We want to just ask you about it. You know, after your daughter was born, you and your husband decided to make a pretty significant life change. Can you tell us about your RV journey? Yes. Um, so we were uh, both sort of born and raised in the same town in the Midwest and never really traveled much uh, growing up. Um, but having a child will rock your world as any parent can attest. And I think we all have different reactions to how that manifests. And um, ours happened to be like, hey, what do we want more of in life? You know, um, is this going to be the same pattern we follow forever? This is the same sort of life we've been living. And so whenever we thought about what we wanted more of, we wanted more experiences and we wanted less things. Um, so we thought about how could we manifest that and uh, came across some people doing the RV life thing on YouTube. Um, it was my my, I was the one pushing for this. And my husband was like, absolutely not. No way. Um, <laughs> but I managed to convince him and yeah, we sold our house, um, sold almost everything we owned. I still have photos. Uh, obviously I gave a lot away too, of like the trash bags, like piled up on my front porch, waiting for the Vietnam vets to come get it. Um, and yeah, we moved into a motorhome and we traveled the country for 16 months. What, what were some of the things that you learned well on the road? Uh, I mean, they can be like the philosophical aspect of it, you know, experiences beyond that, or, you know, the other part can be, uh, you know, make sure the chemical toilet is emptied before you go over the, you know, over the mountain pass <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, I learned that there's something to like in every place. Mm. Um, so some of the places we stayed, you know, are, little town in the middle of the country right off the interstate right like what's there to and what's there to find to like there but I think we found ourselves finding something like cute or intriguing or interesting about almost everywhere we stayed um, which was a good lesson that good things you know can be found everywhere you just kind of have to look for them um, I think driving an RV over a big RV especially over mountain passes is terrifying <laughs> Um, the amount of times, oh my God, I just remember, especially the first time we were driving, um, we came from Pennsylvania. So we headed South through West Virginia and there's some significant mountain passes there. And we were in this, you know, big old motor home and the, uh, the brakes were, uh, smelling so, mm. so bad. And the yeah. brakes were overheating. And I remember like, I went to bed that night and my jaw was so <laughs> sore, um, from being so tense. <laughs> so yeah. Um, that is not fun. Uh, we eventually switched to a fifth wheel and a truck, uh, which which handled the mountain passes a lot better. But that old motorhome was terrifying. Um, and I'm trying to think. I think lastly, um, I took a step back from work uh, when we did the RV thing, and 
I thought, you know, I'm going to experience freedom and like, I'm never going back to a desk job. And like, this is going to be the start of, you know, something new for me. And I think I realized that having some routine in my day and having like regular, regular talk, regularly using my brain at a certain level, regularly feeling like I accomplished something. Um, those were all things that I did find in my work. And so I think I came back to work with a whole new attitude and it wasn't one of like, oh yeah, I'm only going back because I need the paycheck. It was like, I'm going back because I want to, and because this is how I operate best as a human. So it, it really, I didn't expect that at all, but it gave me a whole new perspective on working. Is the RV lifestyle still part of your, of who you are now? Like, do you, do you take vacations that way now? Or is that something that was a, that was something you experienced once and right now you're, it's backburnered? So we've tried to sort of continue the RV thing. Um, we bought a, a van, um, just a Chevy Express, like camp van, well, 12 passenger, like a big van. Um, and we started converting it into a camper van oh, wow. um, over COVID. And we've taken some trips with it, but we've found, honestly, that it's, we had to sell our large RV. And it's almost like at this point, we think it would be better to either have an RV that has some real comforts, yeah. uh, which our van is pretty much just like a rolling bed. Um, <laughs> and or just go simple and go tenting. And that way you can hike in and have much more beautiful scenery than you can have at like a campground. So I think we're still trying to find our perfect balance post RVing. I can attest uh, that uh, tenting, while probably nice out in the, uh, the Rockies, uh, down here in Florida, you've got a very narrow window. Other than that, you're, you're practicing your uh, uh, how to survive on Guadalcanal during the during World War II? It's, oh my it's like jungle warfare. Down. It's a, you just pray for the weekend to end so you can get, get to yes. someplace cool because it's you're all you're soaking wet from the ski and then mosquitoes and all the other. Uh -huh. We yeah. talk about how many how many unzipping of the tents does it take to get mosquito equilibrium on the inside and the outside. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's about five. Yeah. It's it's about... <laughs> and that's from a scientific study. That's, I mean, you know. Oh my gosh. Very, is it really? Yeah. 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 Oh, Jack's got a lot of experience. That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, as a bunch of Florida people here, we thought like the Starbucks pumpkin spice latte was really the gold standard, Hannah. Um, then we heard about a Colorado version that we didn't even know was possible. Can you tell us about your preferred? Uh, pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> okay, this makes me laugh because I didn't realize it was so unique. Um, so I will go if I, I love love a pumpkin spice latte in the fall. Um, no shame in that game, but I will not get it if it's just like the bottled uh, syrup, um, like the pumpkin flavored syrup. Um, instead, I ask these coffee shops if they make their own pumpkin. Um, and, you know, it's about 50-50 whether they do or they don't, but they, the ones that make their own pumpkin uh, syrup, um, roast pumpkin and kind of like distill it down um, oh, wow. into and blend it and do add some sweetener, but then they make it into something that, you know, that you can put in a pumpkin latte and sort of, you know, you drink your latte and then after it's done, you can still sort of see it on the cup a little bit because it's not just like, it has a little bit more thickness to it than just oh, wow. a flavored syrup. So it's actually made from real pumpkin and um, it's not nearly as sweet. Um, and I really, that's really the way to go. Oh, I got to try this. I think I want to try <laughs> to make, I want to make this. What a, 
listeners of the podcast will know that I spent a lot of COVID making like artisanal uh, alcoholic drinks and mixers oh, and yeah. making non-alcoholic drinks for my kids. And so I think this is something we can do this weekend. So I, I have an idea of how I would do it already and, and I will report back on, on how I that. think it might be very popular in Florida know, because yeah. yeah, people love it. Like everyone, I, all of my friends seek out the same thing. It's like, yeah, we don't bother unless it's a homemade pumpkin. <laughs> all right, well, we're, we're going to work on that. One more question about a little bit about the work culture where you are now. Um, it's asynchronous, I think. What, mm-hmm. what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of working in an asynchronous sort of work environment? Yeah, so you're right. GitLab operates fully async. And for example, my immediate team I work with of, let's say, 10 or so people, we've never once actually had a team meeting where we're all there. Um, And it's because being around the world, um, we're a fully distributed team as well. Um, There's no one time where we could all make it. Um, So I think one of the benefits I've really seen is this forces us to document um, we take very thorough notes, notes on every meeting, we record every meeting, and that way um, someone can catch up. And a lot of times what I do is I just record myself talking and I'm not even in a meeting, but it's just, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? Can you give me some feedback? Um, share my screen. And then we work from there. Um, uh-huh. So that way um, there's always notes to refer back to, I think, which is helpful because it's so easy to forget exactly what was said. Um, and disadvantages is sometimes things take a little bit longer. So we don't expect our coworkers to immediately respond to a message on Slack. Like it might be a day, it might be two days. Um, but we think that this trade-off is worth it for what the lifestyle that it gives us, um, in terms of not feeling like we constantly have to be on, um, and having more flexibility in our days. Um, and then the fact that everything is documented, everything, wow. we're very transparent. So by default, we actually share everything publicly. Um, so our customers can go um, and see exactly what our roadmap is, uh, which is pretty rare. Um, they can see if they want to, speaking of privacy, they can see all the comments I make on different issues um, every day. And that also comes with its own um, cost because some customers know all they have to do to get a hold of me is to tag me in an issue and I'll respond. So I think that um, it all has its pros and cons. <laughs> I love that idea though, of like having a transparent work environment like that and, and thinking of the project you're working on as being just as much yours and your teams as it is your customers, right? That you're, you're giving that kind of almost direct service and transparent services is really unique. Yeah. Um, and it, it saves us a lot of time too, because All we do is point at, you know, if I justified why, let's say something is going to miss a release and going to take longer. And I'll comment and say, you know, here's why this took longer than we thought. And here's the new scheduled date for it. Rather than having to, you know, reach out to every customer and communicate that, they can all just be tuned into that one issue and all see the same thing. All right. Well, after a short break, we'll return with Ernie's lifestyle polygraph. So please stay with us. You're listening to the No Password Required Podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. All right, welcome back. Hannah, are you ready for the lifestyle polygraph? Yes, I'm ready. All right, yes. So our listeners know this is typically used as a tool to 
determine people's eligibility to have access to some of our nation's most sensitive secrets. But here, we just try to use it to probe the minds of our uh, guests on the show. So it's a series of five questions. Uh, and then we're going to start here. And here's the first one. Question number one. If our show were to do a year on an RV tour, okay, I just got to caveat that by saying that uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to spending a year in an RV with, the, with Jack and Rex and, and Serena and the whole crew. Uh, uh, what are some of the things that we should see or do? Okay, so I guess this one is more in the do category, but I would say do get a setup where you can be comfortable off grid. Um, so I, this definitely opens up your options, especially if you come out west, which you should if you have a year. Um, there's a lot of BLM land, um, which belongs to US citizens and anyone can camp on it for free. Um, the catch is that there is no trash service, there's no water hookups, there's no electricity, um, but this is really no problem if you have the right RV uh, that can keep you comfortable with water tanks, a generator, whatnot. Um, so I would say get an off-grid uh, capable RV and make sure you pack it out and leave no trace. It's an important part of being a good steward of our public lands um, and places. So I think um, Arizona, Sedona, the Grand Canyon, um, I'd never seen the Grand Canyon before. That was like, honestly, the beauty of that moved me to tears. Um, which is something that's never happened to me before. So that, I just thought that was so incredibly beautiful. And there's uh, BLM land 10 minutes outside of the park where you could park your RV and so you can be nice and close. Um, one of my other favorites was, um, you may be familiar, was Top Sail Hill Preserve State Park um, in Santa Rosa Beach, which is near Destin. Um, and I thought definitely go there in the RV uh, for the most beautiful unspoiled beach um, because it is a state park. They have it, you know, uh, completely undisturbed the whole way up to the shoreline. So you get to see what the, what the native forests are like there. Um, and it's really beautiful with super clear water. Um, and my last thing to do would be, I think RVing across the country is a really great time to visit people you don't normally get to see. Um, we stopped and saw a aunt, great aunt and uncle I'd never met and ended up staying with them for a week. And I think the greatest part is, you know, you still have your own space because you're in the RV uh, and then they have their own space and you can still meet for dinner or whatever. So it's just a really great way to travel. I think right. we should do this and we should build it around like DevCon in Vegas and try well, to I, get from Florida there, even if we only <laughs> did it for a month. I, I, I think this is, I think we're onto something here. I, I, I'm picturing the, the no password required RV, of course, it's probably going to look like Cousin Eddie from uh, Christmas Vacation. <laughs> See that? that? There's an RV. Hey, Hannah, what's your, what's your, are you using like satellite internet? Like how do you get on the internet if you're off like that? Do you, or do you, so keep in mind, we RV'd um, in 2017 and yeah. actually things have changed a lot since then. Uh, we had an, un, a couple unlimited um, data plans via cell, cell provider oh, wow. okay. um, and maybe one that would have coverage in one area didn't have coverage in another. So that's why we had two. Um, but from the RVers, we still follow. Apparently, Starlink is the way to go. So okay. right. I, that was the only barrier to me, Ernie. So I'm on. Yeah, I, I think we're I think we're on to something here. <laughs> I, I can I can see it coming. But I guess that defeats the purpose of being off the grid, though, if we're reachable the whole time. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I tell you what, Jack, you know, I think it's going to be cool. I mean, with that, that shirt, that plaid shirt, I think you'll fit right in. I mean, out here in the wilderness, lumberjack look. I'm, I'm well, for, for the, you know. yeah, for those of us who are listening and not watching us. Um, actually, you know what? My shirt is so loud today that it may actually be uh, maybe picked up by the audio recording. I think you're right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jack Clavy. <laughs> okay. Question number two. What's the best work-related day you've ever had? Um, one comes to mind that was recent. So um, recently I did my first ever public speaking at a conference in Chicago. It was one of my goals for myself for the year. And the whole morning, my curtain call wasn't until 1 p.m. So I had to spend the whole morning being like horribly nervous. And that was horrible. Um, but the rest of the day made up for it. And I guess the first factor in that was just like the palpable relief of being done um, and also doing something where I felt like I really challenged and pushed myself. Um, that's a feeling I don't do often enough, but something I really enjoy. Um, and then the second part is that, so at GitLab, we're all remote. We have about 2000 coworkers, most of which I've never met. Um, but in Chicago, there was about eight uh, GitLab employees at this conference. So I got to meet eight of my coworkers and they were cheering me on in the audience, which was really nice. Um, and then the other aspect of that is that I also spent some time working the booth. Um, we had a booth there. Um, so I got to talk to people who use our software um, and being on the side of the builder, being the builder of the software, it feels like a lot of the time we get back either complaints or feature requests. Um, and it often feels like, you know, no matter what you build, it's never good enough and customers are always going to want more. So actually being able to have those um, conversations where we get to understand, hey, like our software is being used to build really important stuff. And like, again, going back to that sort of human connection and making a difference and getting a feel that your work every day does matter um, was really validating. And I was really grateful for that. It's true. It's like you can think if you only if, if you're only interacting with squeaky wheels. I mean, because that's the part of the job or part of the role. There's, you know, 90% of the folks who are using it every day and, and, and are thrilled by it aren't going to reach out with a positive message. So that's a that's a great idea to, to put yourself in positions where you can get positive reinforcement from time to time. Yes, is yes, nice... that, is, that is very important. <laughs> and I was sure to take back, you know, the posit positivity back to my team and sort of let them know as well, because I think, you know, in engineering, you can also just be so, uh, in the day-to-day -day development of features and you don't really get that feedback loop of hearing that anyone's happy with it or using it. So I wanted to bring that back to them as well. I, I do a breach response services, Hannah, and uh, I only hear from people when they're in crisis. I never, uh, and so people are like, oh, I'm talking to you, Jack, I'm sick to my stomach. So I got to figure out a way <laughs> to like talk to clients I've worked with in the past who, who are not do. experiencing breach. Hey, Jack, good <laughs> to not talk to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But that's cool I, that you were able to get out and listen to some people who are happy users. Yeah, it was really nice. I'm just going to say something, Jack. You left yourself wide open right there. People say, Jack, when I talk to you, I'm sick to my stomach. It's it's sad because those are those are his friends. Those are the people <laughs> that he likes. That likes it's true. I, you know, I don't. I, it's not that I don't like you. It's I associate you with things that are bad. That, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> no, that's exactly. Yeah, you, you're right. Because it's one of those things. Nobody ever writes the technology people and say, hey, listen. Oh, my stuff, my stuff worked today. Thanks. Right. You never hear that. It, it right. doesn't happen. It, it, still, it did. It did what I expected and maybe a little bit more. Thanks. Do you remember like 
I don't know, maybe five or 10 years ago when computers would just randomly restart all the time. Yes. I was just thinking like, wow, that doesn't ever happen anymore. It doesn't happen anymore, exactly. (laughs) And you know what? We are improving. Yeah, somebody somewhere fixed that. Yes. And and they'll never know. And they'll never know how grateful I am. Exactly, (laughs) that they changed the world, that the the, the course of humanity shifted that day. Uh, But meanwhile, they're going back to, you know, griping about how come, you know, yeah. I just updated this thing and these people, they want me to change this. I don't know what that what is. It? It's like this product that I just learned about or this feature that I just learned about isn't working that well. And I'm furious. That's what, yes. that's okay, exactly. minutes ago. what I've never had before. <laughs> that's what I think Pat Oswald, the comedian has a bit about like Wi-Fi on planes. You know, he gets on, he's like, this is Wi-Fi on this plane. That's amazing. And then it's not working. And he's like, son of a gun. This is the worst <laughs> thing ever. I can't believe it. This thing never works. Uh, so on to our third question, uh, follows on from uh, the, the second one. You've recently started booking speaking engagements. What would be your dream keynote? Okay, I could come up with a, a few elements. I'm not sure of the title, but one element of it would be um, empowering people to care about their online privacy and their digital footprint. And I know we talked about that previously. I think I would like to weave in a message about our responsibility of leaving the internet better than we found it. Uh, so the internet is such a powerful force, uh, both for good and for bad. And I do think uh, we can tip the scales towards good and bring out more of the good in the internet and think about future generations and what legacy are we leaving behind as sort of the initial stewards of the internet. Um, and then I think Uh, another empowerment message of you can do things that will help protect your privacy online. So it's not a situation where everything is too far gone and you have no control. And um, I think the message would be one of like, here's some practical things you can do to sort of start to take back some of the control of your personal data. I love that idea of like, leave no trace, but for the internet, right? Or or just like almost like like an RV and camping ethos for our use of this internet, which is a public space and one that yeah. we insert ourselves into. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I just, you and I, Jack, are thinking of the same thing. I just, yeah. I just wonder how much, uh, quote, uh, internet litter is there floating around out there? You know, junk just, just that's out and are, are we quote, polluting the internet? Uh, you know, with, with that, it, uh, I have to believe that there's something to that. There's something there. There's something there. <laughs> I don't know what it is yet. But okay, here we are. Number four, this is, a, this is going to be a tough one. Which are better episodes of The Bachelor or Bachelorette? The ones where they fall in love or the train wreck ones? Which are better? Um, there's always an element of train wreck. Um, I feel like there is no and, there is no or here. It's just an <laughs> and statement. Um, you can escape that even on the seasons where there is also love. Um, and I, I think I'm kind of a sap. I let myself get caught up um, in the falling in love. And, you know, I do know that six months later on the dot, there will be that Instagram post that they broke up and they're calling it off. Um, but I try to forget about that, suspend reality and just get caught up in the falling in love. So 
I also think, you know, there's this fantasy world they're living in of like these fancy dates, uh, unlimited alcohol, beautiful free vacations. And I, I have fun getting caught up in that. And I also think like, no wonder they're falling in love. Like who wouldn't under those circumstances? <laughs> <laughs> there, there is like a lot, like when you watch, one of the things I like about reality TV versus maybe a sitcom is the sitcom has to have the, the, this drama. And a lot of times people treat one another poorly. In, in scripted drama to create tension. And then there are these moments in reality television where people are genuinely kind to each other or they're trying to impress each other and they're trying to be nice to each other. And I know The Bachelor and Bachelorette have, have much, much conflict between contestants, but there are these moments where they people are genuinely trying to be nice to each other. And yes. I think that's that's a special thing about that show. And, and a lot of reality TV almost in contrast is that there are opportunities to watch people being kind. There's there lot, are. There's not a lot of that out there. There are for sure. For sure. I, I always say that my reality TV habit is like, you know, it's like eating junk food. Like I spend so I spend all day thinking so critically and having to use my brain that, you know, I, I recharge by watching this reality TV. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just indulge in this. Ooh, it's bit, like little, eating a bag of chips. Exactly. You know? a, little, a little whipped cream on this little, uh, on this little <laughs> relaxation. Exactly. I like I know it's bad and I also see its value. So <laughs> Okay, here it is, the fifth and final question. What is your favorite way to spend time with your daughter? And the follow-on is, what is her favorite way to spend time with you? Okay, um, so my daughter definitely forces me to slow down, um, which is tough for me. I have a like underlying mental track of like, I like being productive and like, what can I get accomplished? And that just flat out isn't impossible a lot of times um, with a kid. And it's been honestly a really hard lesson for me the past six years since she's been born. Um, and I think one of our favorite ways to spend time together um, is to do crafts. She's a very creative, crafty girl. And I like to use uh, materials that I find at the thrift store, which is like where craft materials go to die. But I always feel like it's a little <laughs> less, less wasteful than buying them um, new from the store. Um, and we look up ideas on Pinterest and YouTube. And I've been, I've been noticing how that sort of, although mentally, I'm usually like, yeah, you know, I don't really feel like doing a craft right now. But once we sort of get into it, um, I start to lose myself and like lose sense of time, which I guess is a, apparently a good thing for the human brain, like a flow state, right? Um, and I think it's ultimately very good for me to be working with my hands um, and to physically be touching things and putting something together. Um, it's not really a element I get daily in my digital world. Um, so I think doing crafts is is helpful and fun for both of us. Um, and then she also forces me to get in the pool and to swim. Um, I was a high school swimmer. I was a lifeguard. So I'm like very familiar with swimming, but it's not something I've really taken up in my adult life until she forced me back into the pool. And um, we always go swimming at the recreation center here, um, which is kind of like the community gym, like a YMCA. Um, they have a indoor um, pools and lazy river. Cause we are in Colorado oh, wow. and I, she and I love the lazy river because that's swimming, but it's also relaxing. So I feel like that's the one thing we can both get behind when it comes to swimming. The lazy river is like one of the best un, un like talked about 
inventions of the last 50 years. I don't even know how old it is, right? But it, it's a, every time you're like, oh, we're going to go someplace. All right, that's pretty cool. And there's a lazy river. Yes. Everyone's like, that's amazing. We're doing that first. Yeah. And who would have thought? Who, who would have thought? What is it? Uh, it's just a it's, a, it's a, it's a little canal around the pool. Uh, right. That you just, it just pushes in. water. Although yeah, at, our, really? at our lazy river, they have, um, they have, they do workout classes in the lazy river where you run against the river. So oh, wow. it, it provides resistance and you have to do aqua aerobics against the current. So that's a whole other use for it. <laughs> See, there it is. I mean, innovation the hard, just you're, abounds. You're using the lazy river wrong. You got to take Yeah, exactly. It's the not the lazy way. river anymore. It, well, that's exactly the correct. hard work river. How, yeah, that's it's right. Not. So it's no longer lazy. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, if, it, if, if it's lazy, it seems like it, it should be easy, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's not the lazy river anymore. <laughs> you have to put the current going the other way. You know, yeah, and have right. it just push you around. Yeah. Right. And then, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that, that brings us to the end of the lifestyle polygraph. Um, as we look, you know, looking for uh, our lazy river again, because you know, I, I can't stand a hard working river. I I don't I don't do it. But uh, um, so, uh, Hannah, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you know, if our listeners wanted to connect with you, how would they, uh, how would they go about doing that? I would love anybody who wants to connect. Um, I would love to, for you to reach out. Um, and my, probably the best way is on both Instagram where I'm at the privacy chick, C-H-I-C-K. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter at H-H Suter. That's uh, H-H-S-U-T-O-R. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our program. And thank you for joining us. First and foremost, I have to thank my co-host, Jack Clabby, and thank you to our guest, Hannah Suter, the privacy chick who's striving to make a difference in the world and is doing it every day, looking out for folks' privacy. So now, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the No Password Required podcast. You can find us on social media at No Password Pod. Send your comments and questions to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. And if you'd like some show swag, just ask, and we'll hook you up. I'm Ernie Ferrasso, and thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required podcast. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. A special thanks goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields and Second Watch. If you would like to learn more about the show, visit our website at cyberflorida.org pod. And if you still need more show content, check out our social media at NoPasswordPod.